welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. And I'm Allie. And today we are continuing with part two of our episode on the Ottomans. Um, I think today we're going to get a little more specific into good old Mehmed's journey. Yes, we are. We're going to talk about the Conqueror. Specifically how he became Specifically how he became, well, he be- that's a pretty quick answer. He was the heir to the sultan. But <laughs> how he became the conqueror and his legacy that he left for the Ottomans who came after him. And also so a little was bit he of a story sultan? of how he conquered uh, Constantinople. He, um, he was, well, so they were already using that term before they conquered Constantinople. But as we'll talk about, the conquering of Constantinople was like the linchpin in their plan for world domination. But the empire, they were already calling themselves an empire before this. Because remember I talked about last time the adventures in the Balkans and their expansions into Anatolia and all of that. So they had already expanded beyond their little corner of Anatolia. Okay. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, I think you said you were going to wait and do Royal Oops after this. I'm going to just assume that we made some last time. We might make some this time. And so we'll just do one fell swoop next time. (laughs) Um, I have a little bit of gossip. I don't think it's going to take very long. Um, It's, you know, coming up on midsummer. So I think things are starting to slow down. But this is interesting to me because I live in the Boston area And the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees just played a couple of games over in London. And for the first game, Harry and Meghan actually showed up to the game, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, Meghan is on maternity leave, so it was kind of surprising that she decided to show up. And so people weren't expecting her. And the second was that one of the Red Sox players is distantly related to Meghan Markle. So they hugged it out as long-lost cousins. Uh, That would be Mookie Betts and uh, their great-great-something-great-grandfathers were brothers. Interesting. That's kind of cool. Yeah, kind of cool. Um. Although apparently, I don't know, I can't confirm this because I only heard this at work, but one of my coworkers was very indignant because apparently Megan said that the jersey that the Red Sox gave her would never be put on the baby. So apparently she's not a Red Sox fan. No, I think she might be a Yankees fan. Mm, I don't know. I know she's been seen in a Chicago White Sox cap, so who knows where her loyalties lie. But apparently it is not with the Red Sox. Um, So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. And then I saw an interesting thing today just before we were um, getting ready to do this. So it is the um, anniversary of, is it the anniversary of Princess Diana's death? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Today would have been her birthday. It would have been her 58th birthday. So there was a group of people um, gathered outside the gates of Kensington Palace. And apparently William came out to say hello which shocked everybody. So, yeah, just to thank them for what they were doing and to say hello. And I thought that was, must have just been home and thought, you know, let me go see these people who are having a little memorial for my mother. Got to be really strange to be in that kind of position. But the people were very overcome with emotion, so it clearly meant a lot to them. He's had a bit of a stellar week, actually. Yeah, yeah, he has. Um, He came out and said if one of his children ended up uh, being gay, he'd be totally fine with that, Um, which was a first time a member of the royal family was publicly endorsing the idea that a royal could be a member of the LGBTQ community. I don't know. I'd say he's getting a good round of decent press, which is interesting. Yeah, I thought he also had a... I thought his comment about that was also very well-reasoned, where he was like, I would be totally fine and support my child, but like there are very real considerations about like the role that we play in society, and I would just worry about like the negative attention that they would get, um, which I thought was very 
honest. Like, you know, unfortunately people are terrible and like it probably wouldn't be an easy position to be in. So, yeah. And it's funny, um, you know, I feel like this year, I don't know if it's just me, but it feels like pride was very front and center this year. So I don't think it's that surprising that he was asked to comment on it. And I think he had probably been prepared or was prepared to to make that comment. I don't, you know, I think they had to know that if he's out and about during June, it was probably going to come up. Especially because I think the event he was at was somewhat um, focused in the area. So seemed to work out. Um, and all of this is good because, you know, the big to-do this past week was the amount of money that was spent on the renovations for Harry and Meghan, which I think, you know, seems to rile people up, spending money on all those old buildings. And then, you know, we've talked about this before. The royal residences are horribly maintained. Well, no, they're well maintained now, but they're in horrible shape because they're old. (laughs) Well, no, but they haven't been maintained over the years. So I think we talked about this. Maybe we didn't. But I think it was last year or the year before Elizabeth asked for a rather large sum of money to redo not only Buckingham Palace, but a lot of the other royal residences because they had been allowed to fall into such disrepair. And so the idea, you know, people were kind of upset because they said it's her duty to maintain these residences and, and they just weren't doing the work as they went along that needed to be done. So now they're in its kind of crisis mode. And I think this Frogmore Cottage was in a similar position. Apparently, I was reading it just needed new everything, new electrical, new heating, new pipes, new plumbing, um, you know, and, and all of that. You're basically rebuilding from the inside out, and that gets quite pricey. So I think, you know, and it, and it costs a lot of money to prepare an antique building because you have to do everything a little differently um but you know i think it's just sort of something you see every year or or two the press goes crazy about the cost of maintaining all of these residences and it's just harry and megan's turn i guess yeah i wonder if it's not like a self-fulfilling prophecy where like you put off the renovations because you don't want the public backlash but then that creates more problems because you've put the renovations off too long so I'm sure it's a mix of both um you know it's just I'm sure it costs a lot of money to just keep the electricity going at Buckingham Palace so I can't imagine what those conversations are like when they say oh but actually you should fix the plumbing and it's like oh could we get another year out of these pipes maybe we could okay yeah we'll we'll just do that and then it's 10 years later and it's you know the ballroom is flooding and oh boy you've got problems so yeah um well speaking of renovations we're gonna move into the renovations of the ottomans because they did quite a bit of rebuilding after the sack of constantinople Oh, very nice segue there. Yeah, I thought so. Thank you. So just a quick reminder, um, if you haven't listened to the last episode, I highly suggest that you do because we did a bit of a walkthrough of the Ottoman history before 1453 when Mehmed the Conqueror led his troops into Constantinople. Um, It's not required to understand this episode, but it gives a little color and background and a little bit more information on where the Ottomans came from. Um, So check that out if you haven't already. But we did talk a very abbreviated history of the Ottomans. Like, we're talking like 200 years, so not the full picture. And we definitely didn't go into, like, detail. But we were talking about this date of 1453 when seemingly the Ottomans, like, leapt onto the world stage and conquered this city, Constantinople. Um, It was a little more nuanced than that, as we like to say. They didn't quite appear out of nowhere. But it was a big deal. I mean, the Western world was just, I wouldn't necessarily say shocked, but they were a little bit shocked that this had finally happened because, you know, Constantinople was essentially Rome at that point and it had fallen to the so-called infidels. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about the man who led this effort, uh, Sultan Mehmed II, also known as Mehmed the Conqueror. Um, So really quick, just a 
get us going. He was born on March 30th of 1432, and he died on May 3rd of 1481. So um, about a little less than, uh, or maybe a little more than 50 years. So I guess for the time, like pretty long life. He's known, as I said, as Mehmed the Conqueror, or he's known in Turkish as Fatih. Or he has a lot of other titles, depending on who you ask and the circumstances. So um, he was known as Fatih in Turkish and also known as Sultan, which is Arabic for ruler, but he was also known as the Khan, which is Turkish for emperor, um, or he was also known as Padishah and Shahinishah, which was Persian for both great king and king of kings. He also liked to style himself as king of the, or the emperor of the Romans, as one man said to him in 1466. The seat of the Roman Empire is Constantinople, therefore you are the legitimate emperor of the Romans, and he who is and remains emperor of the Romans is also emperor of the whole earth. Not a bad gig. Not a bad gig, no, and and I think if someone's telling you to call yourself emperor of the whole earth, you might be tempted to go ahead and add that to your business card, you know? You know, at this point, Constantinople had effectively replaced Rome as the most important center of the world, essentially, as the power center of the former Roman Empire shifted east, and now Mehmed had conquered this place. Westerners and Europeans alternately called him the Grand Turk or sometimes the Sultan. They called the empire Turkey. But I just want to make note that we're not talking about Turkey at this point as we've come to know it. Um, This empire, the empire of the Ottomans, is a dynastic entity and is named after and known as the exalted domain of the House of Osman, or sometimes they called it the sublime state. So until the end of the 19th century, the term Turk actually was pejorative and was applied mostly to Anatolian peasants. So I'm sure the Sultan found it mildly insulting or more than mildly to be called the Grand Turk by his European rivals. And perhaps they knew that and that's why they called him that. And he also claimed the title of Caesar in the vein of this conqueror of Rome, um, but that was only recognized by the Eastern Orthodox Church. So so who was Mehmed? So like I said, he was about 51 when he died, um, which maybe wouldn't sound like it leaves much time for him to be sultan and emperor, but he was actually only 20 years old when he rode his horse into Constantinople. Um, and by that point, he had also actually already ruled twice. So he was a seasoned pro. He ruled from August of 1444 to September of 1446. And then again from February of 1451 until his death in May of 1481. This first time he ruled, his father abdicated his throne, but then took it back two years later after some internal political squabbling that honestly, based on the brief history I ran through last week, seemed to be pretty standard at this time. I don't think they were in the habit of installing a man on the throne and then taking him off, but Mehmed had the bad luck to uh, both inherit the throne from his father twice. He was a man of his time, though, He had and his religion, so he had five wives. Um, although, despite this, he only had four children that I read about, although that could very well be that he only had four legitimate children on the record, and who knows how many he had illegitimately. Maybe only four that um, lived to adulthood. It could be that as well. I really didn't find a ton of information about the specifics of who these wives were and who these children were. Well, one of them will come into play later, but... Um, Yeah, only four that I read about. He was a learned man, so apparently he was fluent in Turkish, Serbian, Arabic, Persian, Greek, and Latin. To what degree of fluency is not really clear. I did read one comparison of him to Charles V, um, which kind of implied that his language skills weren't quite that good, but I think still pretty good for his time. It's important to note that the Ottomans at this time, especially once they conquered Constantinople, were not only ruling in Turkish or this kind of blend of Persian Arabic Turkish that they used, they were also pretty heavily using Greek at the time. And then, of course, this empire extended in the Balkans as well, so Serbian would have been a language important for him to know. I don't have a ton of detail on like his looks or how he was, although I did find a description of him um, around the age of 45 as of medium height, fat and fleshy. He had a wide forehead, large eyes with thick lashes, an aquiline nose, a small mouth with a round copious reddish tinged beard, a short thick neck, a sallow complexion, 
rather high shoulders, and a loud voice. So, I'm not sure how attractive a picture this is painting of him, but it certainly, to me, paints the picture of a very authoritative man who enjoyed his pleasures in life. And we have to account for the differing beauty standards of the time. They might be describing the perfect male specimen. It's 100% true, and I... I'm not sure if the person writing this description was um, someone who was brought in from outside the empire as well. So who knows what shade he was suddenly throwing at the emperor while he wrote that as well. (laughs) But like I mentioned last time, until Mehmed decided to conquer Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire had until that point held out against the Ottomans, mostly through manipulating internal Ottoman politics and threatening crusades. Um, But they weren't holding out with a position of strength, really. So Mehmed did finally topple it, and he was sort of driven by this zeal to take Constantinople for himself. He claimed to have been possessed since childhood with the idea of conquering what was widely known as just the city, or polis in Greek. Um, There was no other city but Constantinople. And once he became sultan again, he insisted on doing just this. He would conquer Constantinople without delay. I think for him, it probably was a bit of pride as well. You know, he's already been deposed once, and now they've let him back on the throne. He's going to show them why they were wrong. (laughs) So um, I do want to mention he's only the latest, though, in a long list of would-be conquerors of Constantinople. You know, Constantinople was like this shining city that was called the city of the world's desire. And as a result of its prime location and the prestige that one would get from potentially conquering it, um, it endured many attacks and sieges over the years. In fact, 17 separate ones from 378 to 1204 AD. So by the time Mehmed entered the city, it had started to kind of show the wear and tear of being pretty constantly under siege in some way, about once a century on average, or more even. So by the time Mehmed entered the city, it had shrunk to a collection of small towns, essentially. So I'm envisioning this as like various neighborhoods within the city walls that have kind of shrunk into themselves. Um, It was populated by no more than 50,000 people. Um, In fact, repeated Muslim defeats had helped encourage people to leave, and the city never really recovered from a Western crusade in 1204 that was meant to wrest control back to the Byzantines, who I believe had briefly lost it. It, at this point, was basically a Greek island in the middle of an Ottoman sea. You know, I mentioned last time over 200 years, the Ottomans had very slowly been chipping away at the lands around Constantinople and the remaining territories of the Byzantine Empire. So they were successful enough to the point where Constantinople really was the last remaining target. Um, but, you know, even despite the seeming inevitability of this, it it wasn't always you know, going to be like a a given outcome. And, you know, they really did have to fight for it. And Mehmed and the Ottomans, they considered themselves destined to rule a great empire. And they saw Constantinople as this incomparable historical imperial capital and a very potent symbol of this authority that they could have, even despite its current state of decline. So it must have been extremely tempting and also strategically necessary for them or that they felt that it was in order to truly create this empire of their dreams they had to take the city of their dreams as well so they decided to do this and the siege of constantinople lasted 54 days so wasn't overnight um the ottoman force however greatly overwhelmed the remaining byzantine defenders in fact they had about 50,000 troops at their disposal compared to about 8,500 men on the Byzantine side. So not really a huge contest of arms, (laughs) if you will. Um, They also brought new technology. So they battered the city walls, these like huge, seemingly impenetrable medieval city walls. um, And they broke through them with these huge cannons that they debuted, um, overwhelming the Middle Age fortifications and entering eventually through a breach in the wall. So one Venetian observer said that after this battle, blood flowed through the streets like rainwater after a sudden storm. Corpses floated out to sea like melons along a canal. I mentioned last time, and I just want to reiterate this, that I feel like whoever wrote the attack on King's Landing in this last season of Game of Thrones studied this 
siege of Constantinople Mm. because it sounded extremely similar, right? Like this breach in the walls, blood flowing everywhere. I was like, oh, I feel like I've seen this just recently. (laughs) Yeah, sounds very familiar. (laughs) Yeah, I just need a dragon or two to come make it, you know, fantasy. And so the rule for the Ottomans was that religious law would grant them three days of pillage, even though Mehmed really didn't want to sack his future capital. But rules were the rules, and the city had been taken by force, and so therefore it could be looted and the people could be legally enslaved. So um, they started to do this. The last emperor, Constantine XI, died fighting in the siege, um, and most Greek and Venetian nobles who remained in the city were executed. Um, so the, the takeover was pretty complete. Um, on day one, uh, to secure this victory and especially secure it symbolically, Mehmed entered the city on a white horse and he rode to the shining cathedral of Hagia Sophia and he converted the church into a mosque and proclaimed, hereafter my capital is Istanbul. So he had completed the greatest conquest in the Um, Islamic holy war and he saw himself holding limitless authority as a consequence we talked a little bit more about the Islamic holy war last time and what that means but really it was just this drive to conquer the world essentially in the name of Islam and also Istanbul by the way is most likely a Turkish corruption of the Greek phrase for into the city so Istin Polin became Istanbul oh interesting yeah you know, much like the conqueror himself, Istanbul had a lot of different names depending on who you asked, but I'm not going to run through them here. And so Mehmed enters the city and he, uh, you know, he's essentially setting himself up as the greatest Ottoman ruler there ever was. And now he's got to go about establishing an empire. You know, I mean, he's got his his city of the world's desire that he's come in and taken fairly easily considering, but now he's got to, you know, make this stick. So over the next 25 years, force is his primary means of control and how he's going to do this. Um, He pretty much immediately orders a fortress built on the west side of the city, um, and it was called the Seven Towers, or in Turkish, the Yedi Kul, I believe, or Yedi Kule. Um, And it was this military fortress that in fact was probably once more feared than the Bastille or the Tower of London. So you did not want to end up there if you were a political prisoner of the Ottoman. He undertook also numerous campaigns to consolidate his power across his territories. He established a centralized empire in Romelia and Anatolia. And forgive me, I am not sure where some of these lands are. Um, I believe Romelia is probably... um, part of these territories that they had already conquered. And he also claimed to be the legitimate ruler of all former territories of the Eastern Roman Empire, of which Constantinople had been the capital, Um, although the Pope claimed his throne was illegitimate since he was not Christian. Um, Neither were the Romans, though, so they seem to be allowed to historically claim that title, so I'm going to allow Mehmed to do that as well. But some of these areas that he set out to consolidate power and conquer, um, he carried out some campaigns over essentially the next two decades. Um, He focused on Serbia from 1454 to 1459, um, a region called Moria, which is essentially southern Greece, from 1458 to 1460, the Black Sea coast from 1460 to 61, and most interesting to me, this region of Wallachia from 1459 to 62, which was a buffer zone between the kingdom of Hungary and the Ottoman lands, and of uh, another historical figure of note pops up where Dracula was very involved in this story (laughs) because as we know Dracula is based on a real ruler um, in these lands and so he was a bit of a rival of Mehmed's and then Albania from 1466 to 78. Um, So he's setting up his territory pretty widely and he does stop at a certain point. So he sets his northern border at the Danube, but he's also at this time is struggling to really bring the Balkans under his authority and fully conquer Serbia. The Balkans are a tough nut to crack. They're a wide variety of peoples, different religions, different kingdoms, and he's trying to bring them all under his control. And also he's got the Venetians coming at him over the sea and he's tangling with them as well. So it's not really an easy time for him. 
But despite all these lands that are kind of right on his doorstep, like the Balkans, um, the Venetians, you know, Europe and Rome are really what are interesting, Mehmed and the remaining and the rest of the Ottomans. Um, they had this metaphor for world dominion called the red apple, which essentially was a like a visual metaphor for the world, but it came to symbolize Rome. Um, and for later Ottomans, it was Vienna, home of the Habsburgs, but the Habsburgs haven't really set themselves up this, at this point, so they've got their eyes set on Rome as the prize. You know, he's taken over Eastern Rome, why not go after Rome, Rome, right? And also this concept of world dominion and conquering was something that Mehmed really felt like was his birthright because he modeled himself after Alexander the Great. Um, in fact, he really strongly identified with him. You know, he's a this historical conqueror who's young and he's taking over the known world. And Mehmed felt that that's what he was doing. And in fact, he commissioned a biography of himself in Greek on the same paper and in the same format as a bio of Alexander that he also had read to himself daily. Fanboy. He was a fanboy and he really was styling himself in the same image. So I guess, you know, that mimicry, sincerest form of flattery, I don't know. But it was kind of a problem for some people because here we have this Turkish Muslim ruler modeling himself after a Greek. So some people didn't really like that. And Mehmed also faced the problem of ruling Constantinople itself. You know, he didn't just have to concern himself with expanding his territory and controlling an empire, but the city was also a really big issue. So he, first of all, wanted to turn what had become a declining population center into a true world capital. And he basically had to rely on multinationalism in order to do this um, because he needed a large and prosperous population to service the palace and the, the state and this like huge administration required to run an empire. Um, but like I mentioned, the city's population was pretty depleted um, by the time the Ottomans came knocking on the door. So his own troops also immediately after I mentioned they were allowed to sack the city and essentially take what they wanted, and that included people. So his own troops shipped out about 30,000 of those remaining 50,000 as slaves. So the population was depleted even more. And then because of the conditions that were, I'm sure, even worse after a sacking and a siege, plague epidemics also didn't help with population building. You know, you've got a minimal population left and they keep dying of the plague. And also there weren't enough Muslim Turks around to really make it a wholly Turkish city, which might have been what they wanted, but it really wasn't representative of this empire that they had built. And so the majority of the population of the empire were Christians. And so the majority of the population of the city for a time was also majority Christian as well. And like the Ottomans before him, I talked a little bit about their repopulation policies last time. Mehmed continued this. He brought in people from all parts of Asia and Europe to inhabit the city. Um, the majority of these people were Turks, although he did also bring in a lot of Christians and Greeks. Um, specifically, he was looking for artisans, merchants, and craftsmen who could help rebuild. Um, and he actually liked having Europeans in his city, or they called them Franks at the time. And he also eventually encouraged a lot of Florentines to move to the city um, because they shared this common enemy of Venice. Remember, at this time, Italy is not a unified state. It's just this collection of kingdoms that are constantly at war with each other, and the Ottomans are taking advantage. Um, but, you know, Mehmed's a bit of a Europhile. He likes these cultured other peoples to kind of hang around and bring their art and their knowledge. And, you know, I think it just makes him feel like he has this very cosmopolitan destination for the world's leading elite. Sounds very um, fitting because at the time we're talking about the Renaissance, basically, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, are we? 1400s yeah yeah so, around there in keeping yeah. with the time yeah so you've got a lot of art and you know um philosophy and everything coming out of the west and so um yeah he's importing some of that as well, well and especially if he's importing italians yes or well, florentines i mean if you if you look on a map so we mentioned this last time it's essentially the boot of italy 
and you cross the water and you've got Istanbul. <laughs> so <laughs> Italy is very close. Yeah, so there would be some natural um, communication. And, you know, as the years go by, trade is also going to build up and, um, you know, you're bringing in culture in that way as well, the way it's happened throughout history. And so Mehmet actually does a pretty good job of all of this. You know, he's establishing an empire, he's setting up his city, and his legacy is pretty good. Um, He made a lot of political and social reforms at home. He encouraged the arts and sciences, like I said, and also all these craftsmen and artisans are coming in, and this rebuilding program changed Istanbul into a thriving imperial capital. Um, And they built a lot of mosques, actually. Actually, I read that one, like, people were always asking, like, in history, like, how did the Ottomans go so broke. Like they had all this money, they're sitting at like the apex of the world essentially. And the answer is they built mosques. They, they spent a lot of money on mosques. They built like 400 something mosques in the city alone. Um, and those are not simple I, buildings. No, they're not simple. And in comparison, I think London at the time had like a hundred churches. So give you a little bit of idea for scale. And they were not skimping on the money. So speaking of mosques, Mehmed granted his subjects a fair amount of religious freedom, which might be surprising, um, you know, considering world history and conquering populations, they tend to like to subjugate their new subjects with their own culture and traditions. But as long as they were obedient to his rule, he really didn't have a problem with religions that were alternate to Islam. Um, Christians actually had protected status, although in order to maintain that protected status, they did have to pay a tax and a poll. Um, but Mehmed took it a little bit further. You know, He revived the ecumenical patriarchate, which had presided over the Orthodox Church from Constantinople since the fourth century. Um, however, this time he revived it as a servant of his empire and with the payment of a large fee. But in return, he established this in person. So, you know, he invested this guy himself. But this was a strategic move. So the idea was that the Sultan would protect the patriarch from a rival Slav Orthodox churches and other Muslim fanatics that existed at this time. And then the patriarch would raise taxes and hopefully guarantee loyalty from his constituents, from the Greeks especially, and prevent them from aiding the empire's Catholic enemies. Uh, I think we talked a lot last time about um, the way the Ottomans were playing these various Christian factions across uh, against each other, and this is just a continuation of that policy. Although personally, Mehmed also had a bit of an interest in Christianity. You know, I think he found it really fascinating. Um, he owned relics such as the cradle in which Christ was born and the arm bone and skull of John the Baptist. Now, whether that's true that these are what those were supposed to be. I'm not sure, but I actually just remembered that I saw the one of these. I think that was the arm bone when I was in Istanbul. So that's on display in one of their museums. <laughs> I literally just yeah, remembered I mean, that. I was like, oh, I've seen the arm bone of John the Baptist. <laughs> who's to say it's not, you know? Like, I mean, that's knows. the thing. Who's to say it's not? Um, it's a bit, it's always a bit strange to me that they take these revered men and spread their body parts far and wide but you know to each their own I suppose (laughs) yeah Uh, so Mehmed also is busy he turns his empire into a commercial power through all these efforts although mostly this happens through the absorption of the trading powerhouse of Galata which is a Genoan port city to the north of Constantinople Um, and so I wasn't really clear if they like fully absorbed them, but I think they were sort of adjacent enough that they worked out treaties with them where like they kind of absorbed all of their um, shipping powers. At this point, like once, especially once they absorbed Galata into the greater empire, Constantinople is is not only the capital of the Ottoman Empire and the Orthodox Church, but also it's running all of the commerce of the Eastern Mediterranean, um, which is not a small chunk of the world's um, naval commerce. And in fact, many Italian nautical terms entered the Turkish language because a lot of these ships that are running across the Eastern Mediterranean are run by Italian sailors and captains. Um, and they're doing enough of a robust trade with the Ottomans that they're influencing the culture. So I thought that was pretty cool. 
So I mentioned this a little bit before, but this idea of repopulation. So Mehmed really favored this practice called Dev Sherme or gathering, which was a conscription of all non-Turkish youths across the empire into government service. And they would, of course, first be converted to Islam and educated if necessary. Um, and then they might be employed as imperial gardeners or sailors or builders or as members of the Janissaries, which was this um, armed force that they built out of these slaves, or they might go into government service if they proved to be especially smart and also especially good looking. You know, they like to have the government look as well as <laughs> be attractive, I suppose. But many families looked at this practice as potentially the best future for their children. You know, it was a chance to occupy the highest posts in the empire that were available, and then the child could then look after their families. And so um, that's kind of how they got away with it was it probably was better than living in the life of a peasant on the Anatolian plains. Um, you know, not everyone was in favor, but it really wasn't as bad. Um, slavery under the Ottomans was a bit less degrading than under other empires. Not that it was a good thing, but um, for a lot of people, it was the the best of available options. Um, and then yeah, there's something to be like, said for free food at the time, you know? like Well, that that's the thing. Far. I mean... I'm not advocating for slavery, but it is true that this life for these youths, especially if they were lucky enough to make it into the top levels of government, actually created a pretty good life for them. Um, now, they had to totally be re-educated and indoctrinated into a religion they maybe didn't want to be in. But um, yeah, I mean, the alternative probably was a really a even more difficult life in early death. And as for Mehmet, he really liked this this practice because it was a great way of transforming these youths into loyal Ottomans. So you get them young, you indoctrinate them, he's essentially brainwashing them into supporting him. So um, it was an effective policy in that way as well. Um, and also because he found a lot of these slaves turned government officials to be more trustworthy. He really distrusted other Turks. Um, many of the Turkish Muslim elite predated the Ottomans and they envied them in their power that they had gained um, over the years. And Mehmet also had a personal grudge. So I mentioned before that he was deposed after his first two years on the throne. And it's pretty likely that this was done at the instigation of the Grand Vizier at the time, a man named Kendarli Halil, who had also, once Mehmed regained the throne, opposed his plan to conquer the city, mostly because he was worried about the Western reaction. Um, and so in retaliation, Mehmed had him executed. And after 1453, only 18 of the first 48 Grand Viziers were native Turks. The rest were all men who had come up through this um, gathering system. All so I, I think about when you say Grand Vizier is Javar, Aladdin. Jafar. From Aladdin. <laughs> I know. I really had that problem too while I was going through this. I was like, oh, the Vizier, <laughs> like Jafar. I think um, when they were writing that movie, they just borrowed heavily from a lot of these terms. They were like, no one's going to know what this is. Yeah, we'll just throw it's it in. essentially a mishmash of Arabic and Turkish customs and a healthy dose, dose of racism as well. So uh, I, w I wouldn't look to Aladdin. And it's a story that originates <laughs> in China, I believe. So yes. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of multiple cultures, like I said, Mehmed wrote and governed in Turkish, um, but also Greek was a popular language of governance as well, I think even up into the 1600s. But Mehmed especially revered Persian culture, um, which at that time for Ottomans enjoyed a prestige in the Muslim world that was very similar to the prestige that French culture enjoyed in 18th century Europe. So I guess they thought they, that the Persians were like very sophisticated and like worldly and cultured and they were trying to emulate them. And so Ottoman, which was this language that they used mostly in the palace and in the governing elite, was partly Persian in vocabulary. Um, that's how much they revered this culture. Um, and so, you know, the this Ottoman language also had a bit of Arabic in it as well. And actually, I was reading that this blending of all these different languages actually made it extremely difficult to learn. 
um, because Persian is notoriously difficult with grammar, and I'm sure they adopted those rules like haphazardly, so I can't even imagine. But by the end of his reign, you know, through all of these efforts, Constantinople was diplomatically, commercially, and culturally part of Europe. So, um, you know, they're sort of edging into Europe as this goal of expansion. You know, like I said, Rome is their ultimate goal, but also they're dealing with the realities of the day. So he makes peace with Venice in 1479, and then he really kicks up this importing of Italian artists um, because Venice is, like we said, a hotbed of Renaissance artists, um, including Bellini, who um, actually he brought in to paint his portrait and those of his family as well. Interesting. Every time you have a Bellini, think of Mehmed. I was just going to say, did he invent the peach cocktail? I think it's named after him. I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, but yeah, I think it's the same, the same um, eponym for the cocktail. I don't know why it became a peach champagne cocktail, but I like to think of the Turks sitting around and drinking those with an <laughs> ottoman. <laughs> uh, that's, that's just bad. Okay. Um, so, um, oh, I actually had his age wrong. So Mehmet died at age 48, actually, not 51, as I was saying, um, in 1481 on campaign. Um, so I read differing accounts that he was either preparing to invade Italy at the time or that at the time of his death, he was trying to lead his army east into Asia. So whichever direction they were going, in the end, he died um, at the, sex the second campsite of this campaign, so pretty early on um, from an intestinal blockage. Uh, he was possibly poisoned causing this intestinal blockage, um, likely by his Persian physician acting at the behest of his son, Bayezid II. So... I don't know if this the, was a case He's got the of, medieval problem of a king with a son who wants his crown. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it was, like, because he was on the decline. Like, I read some descriptions that said he was pretty frail by the end of his life, and so maybe his son was trying to hasten his demise, you know, get him out of the way so he could really rule. But also, um, as we'll talk about, his son did not really approve of the direction that Mehmed had taken the regime. You know, his... Like I said, his legacy was pretty good. He moved the city of Constantinople and, or sorry, Istanbul and his empire into some pretty progressive directions for the time, but um, progressive policies are not always met with approval. Um, and also this integration of Islam into the empire specifically was a sticking point. So his death when he, when it was, announced to the world that Mehmed the Conqueror had died was met with celebration in Europe as you can imagine like they were like oh thank god <laughs> that thorn in our side has has died um but at home you know I don't think his death was celebrated but the regime descended a bit into disorder and some I wouldn't say succession crisis but some succession difficulties um some that were a direct result of Mehmed's policies and single-minded expansion so Bayezid II is the son that ultimately succeeded him but he did have a brother who I believe he had to get out of the way first um whether I think he he might have voluntarily removed himself um but there was a bit of a rivalry but some Turks were still enraged that even all this time later that he had moved the capital of the Ottoman Empire to Constantinople from this other city Adirne um, and that he had used forced repopulation to do so. They were really bitter about having to leave these homes that they owned and then come to and live in Constantinople where they were essentially forced to pay rent in somebody else's home. Like, they found that very offensive, as as I would too. Others resented the cosmopolitanism of his court that he had set up, and um, they perceived this favoritism of enslaved peoples over native-born Turks. Although, as I've talked about, that favoritism was probably not so much perceived as actual. And also his empire's hold over its various peoples was tenuous at best and the Janissary Corps was always a self-made threat. So he gathered all these men from a, young men from across the empire and a lot of them got funneled into this military service but that was always a bit threatening as well because what's stopping them from rising up against the sultan? So all of these factors are being juggled 
after his death. And then also there are the outside threats. So the Europeans are celebrating Mehmed's death. And then now they're also really starting to seriously consider what became known as the Eastern question, um, which is essentially this idea for Western powers on how they're going to conquer this Ottoman territory. Um, it started essentially in 1453 and wasn't realized until World War I, but they had been planning and thinking about how they're going to do that for quite some time. Um, because they felt like Constantinople had been taken from them, and so they're plotting to get it back. Um, they weren't successful until the 19, early 19th century, but right. only 500 years. Well, a little bit less. So... Um, Maybe 450. I don't know. That's not that's not much better of a rounding error. <laughs> so, um, but like I mentioned, so the sticking point of Islam was really the undoing of his legacy. So he had often been criticized in terms of Islam. So he used his religion to cement his dynasty. You know, like I said, the Ottomans were really into building mosques in the city. Um, and in doing so, these mosques would then provide services to the people in the various neighborhoods that they served. Um, and in fact, were the reason that, you know, people would come and visit Constantinople and they were really struck by the lack of beggars on the street. And in the mosques and like the religion were a big part of that. Um, but he was also criticized as not being Muslim enough. Um, and he was criticized by his son Bayezid as having infringed the law of the prophet. Um, mostly this was due to his reverence for non-Islamic culture and history. I mentioned before his reverence of Alexander the Great was a bit of a problem for some people. Um, and so after his death, the city became more Muslim. He had used this executive authority and state law, um, you know, to consolidate his empire, but these were condemned as contrary to the holy law of Islam. Um, and in fact, some of his descendants declined the throne because they believed it was impossible to be both a good ruler and a good Muslim. Um, hmm. His son Bayezid didn't feel that way, but he was known as a very pious Muslim and was known as Veli or the saint. And he's also responsible for promoting the post of Mufti to the third most important in the empire after the Sultan and the Grand Vizier. So after Mehmed's death, he's you know considered a little loosey-goosey with the religion and they're really cracking down and saying we need someone looking out for the religion to be in this high government post. Hmm. Um, and so his descendants ultimately moved the empire into a less religiously tolerant direction, um, but they also expanded its power. Um, so I guess both sides of that coin. But I think that's how we get to the point where by the time Ferdinand and Isabella are dealing with the Ottomans, they're really thinking of them as this Muslim infidel threat because at that point, the religion of the empire had really become synonymous with it, where Mehmed was really going for this cosmopolitan, welcoming vibe, where as long as you would pay him the right amount of money, you could do whatever you wanted, essentially. And he liked having these different cultures all come together. Um, you know, it made, it, it made people want to come visit the city, and it made him feel like he was like ruling over this destination. Um, but his descendants didn't really continue in that direction. And we will talk a little bit about maybe one or two of his descendants down the line. But that's Mehmed. And that's the early days of Istanbul and the Ottomans ruling from the Golden Horn. Well, that was actually very informative. Yeah. I was really worried because I was like, oh, I couldn't really find much about this guy but I think when you think about him in terms of the goals that he accomplished or you know this empire that he set up and maybe it didn't his legacy didn't go in the direction that he intended but he really set the stage for the Ottomans to have their heyday which they're going to in the next century so hopefully that was exciting for everyone too I know um, I apologize to anybody who is picking up on my horrible pronunciation of a lot of these words um, I'm trying my best <laughs> but I'm sure there'll be of a long list of royal oops next time so I didn't even know what half of them meant so you're ahead of the game there <laughs> Well, that's the that's the, that's why we're doing this, right? Like, I think it's it's good to um, talk about these cultures and monarchs that we're not as familiar with. So, yeah. and actually, I'm really excited. I have totally transformed my notion of what was going on with the Ottomans in 1453. Like, they did not just pop out of nowhere, and they 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 didn't so much as like blow Constantinople apart as they just kind of like tipped it over. <laughs> 
oh, we're here. Ours. Three days of smash and grab. I'm and like then imagining the last piece on the Jenga puzzle, you know? Hmm. <laughs> They've just been slowly removing them and they finally, finally were like 54 more days and, and, and we got it. <laughs> um, okay, well, next time we might finally get to your promised discussion topic. Yes, I think I can say what it is. We're going to talk about the Kingdom of Hawaii. Uh, actually, I was inspired by this exciting. because it's, it's about to be July 4th, which is, you know, the celebration of Independence Day in the United States. And I think... Actually, it will have, be today when this airs. Oh, okay. Today. So you and I have kind of talked about the fact that one of the reasons why monarchy is so interesting is that the United States does not have a history of monarchy. And while that is true technically one of our states did for a brief moment in time call itself a kingdom so we will be talking but that's about that's before it was a state that's before it was a state yes I, that's why it was a kingdom um it was you know before it was a territory even um but it's kind of interesting and it's a really interesting culture um the way the kingdom came about and the way it fell was blink of an eye so we'll probably be able to cover most of it <laughs> in one episode but um it's interesting stuff the more I look into it so I think we'll definitely do an episode on that very cool well I'm excited to hear it um well until next time and all of our royal oops that I'm sure to discover <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll talk to you then. Okay, talk to you then. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.